Hello and welcome to COVIDcast, a weekly Lowy Institute podcast for anyone interested in understanding the effects of the novel coronavirus on global politics and international life. My name is Hervé Lamayeux and I'm the director of the Power and Diplomacy program at the Lowy Institute in Sydney, Australia. In this episode, we are joined by none other than Senator the Honourable Penny Wong to discuss Australia's role in shaping the post-COVID-19 world. The senator really needs no introduction for our Australian audience. But for those of you listening from abroad, Penny Wong is the Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs and the leader of the opposition in the Senate. She was a cabinet minister for climate change and then finance in the Rudd and Gillard governments from 2007 to 2013. Thank you very much for joining me. Can I just say it's um, fantastic that you and I we are doing this. I think uh, this pandemic is reshaping the world in ways where we're not yet sure of in ways which will become clear but we know it is reshaping uh, much of how we have understood uh, global politics and international relations. Well thanks for for taking the time. Now you're fairly unique among politicians in Australia in that you're not only a practitioner but also an analyst in the field of international relations. You you publish regularly on Australian foreign policy, you even have a forthcoming article I believe in the next edition of the Australian Foreign Affairs Journal. Um, so I thought we'd begin by asking you to put your sort of analyst hat on and explain the factors behind the relative success of Australia's handling of the pandemic, so far at least. What sets us apart, do you think, from the chaos we've seen elsewhere in Europe and the United States? Well, first, we, we obviously start with the geographical advantage, don't we? So uh, we are an island continent, uh, which gives us certain capacity to uh, reduce people coming over the borders very quickly. Uh, and we're also further uh, from the, the global centres of commerce uh, and travel uh, in, in a way that gives us some protection. Uh, I think really, though, there are a few things that have helped in terms of our success to date in flattening the curve. First, our federal system has worked uh, pretty well. Uh, so that, I think, puts us... Uh, sets us apart from some countries, notably the United States. Uh, we had the premiers, that is the first ministers of the two largest states, Gladys uh, Berejiklian and Daniel Andrews, I think do a very good job in helping steer the national approach in terms of uh, early social distancing, the closure of uh, the national borders, the closure of a couple of, a number of state borders to minimise transit within country. Uh, and we have traditionally had very good medical experts, very good public health experts, uh, and we have taken the advice of those. I think also we've seen a, a great degree of bipartisanship, both in the context of the federal system but also nationally. So the opposition, of which I'm a part, uh, has worked in a bipartisan fashion with the government. We've disagreed on some issues. We've put up uh, some propositions, some of which have been taken up, for example, on the wage subsidy. Uh, but broadly, this has been quite a bipartisan national effort, and I think that's been central to the competent way in which policies have been implemented and to uh, the population agreeing to them. I would say you can't be complacent, though, and we've seen both uh, in, in countries around the world. We've seen Singapore, you know, second, second waves. We've seen even in Australia clusters break out and, and spread quite fast within a region. So we do need to continue to be pretty vigilant. Before we move into the the geopolitics of this uh, pandemic. I wonder if the domestic handling of the health crisis in Australia hasn't taught us a few lessons in terms of expert-based policymaking, uh, bipartisan consensus that could be applied elsewhere, perhaps in terms of uh, climate policy. 
uh, in the wake of the bushfires, our climate policy has really presented a growing sinkhole for our international reputation. Is there perhaps a silver lining in this? I mean, will we see improvement? Look, absolutely. One of the hallmarks of the success of Australia's response to COVID-19 has been a bipartisan consensus predicated on expert advice. That is precisely what has been missing from our climate policy for over a decade, where it has become a, a field of ideological contest. So if one thing out of this we can learn would be that we need a policy to respond to climate change that is based in the science, uh, predicated on advice, and that has some bipartisanship, that would be a great thing. I'm not holding my breath, however, given the the, the internal political dynamics of, of the coalition. But that is that would be the right thing to do for the country. In the global war of narratives that we're sort of experiencing at the moment, the crisis has been billed as a stark test um, of the competing claims for legitimacy of, of both liberal and illiberal states. Um, it's, yeah. I think, intimately tied to perceptions of power as well and legitimacy on the world stage. Do you think Australia and, and New Zealand's success so far um, it marks a victory for, for good old-fashioned democracy? Well, first point I'd make is uh, I think it is to the detriment of humanity that the pandemic, instead of enlivening cooperation, has hardened competition. Uh, and where there's been a lot written, and, and you know, you and your colleagues at Lowy have been amongst those um, analysing and articulating this about the strategic competition the period of strategic competition we're in, particularly between the, the two great powers. Uh, and I think what does mark this, the global response thus far on the pandemic is the absence of the requisite cooperation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, the context of narratives to which you refer, I think is a subset of that. Uh, and it's unfortunate because if there ever were a time where humanity needed a cooperative response, where we needed international cooperation, one would have thought it's, in the context of the worst pandemic in a century and the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. Mm, Absolutely. Now, it it seems remarkable. I mean, usually in in historical experience, um, a human catastrophe tends to accelerate international cooperation, particularly when that catastrophe has natural origins. Um, I'm thinking back to the SARS outbreak in 2003, which led to greater regional cooperation and even an enhancement of the WHO's, uh, the World Health Organization's powers. Um, this pandemic feels different. It's taken mm. on, as you say, a, a divisive um, and geopolitical hue. Um, Australia has been one of the first countries uh, to call for an independent investigation into the causes of the crisis and the performance of key institutions, including the World Health Organization. Um, perhaps predictably, that has provoked a fierce, fierce criticism from Beijing. But I think there's a, there's a question here between, on the one hand, this, this is the right principle, but were the tactics the right ones as well, in the mm. sense that should, should the government have built support behind the scenes for an international inquiry before it went public with the idea? Of course they should have, and I've made that point. I mean, I think, let's start with first principles. It is unremarkable that the nations of the world will want to know how this pandemic began in order to ensure we best avert another pandemic of similar proportions. That is the right thing to do. Uh, And for that reason, uh, my party, uh, the Labour opposition, supported the government's announcement about the need for an international inquiry. 
But I do think the way in which this has been handled by the government uh, has been um, problematic. I think it is you're least likely to get the outcome you want if you announce and then go out and seek support on something which, uh, for, for the reasons we understand, was, was met with um, opposition. Uh, so it would have, I think, been much better if we'd sought and obtained at least some level of international support before the announcement was made. It's very clear from the time frame that the Prime Minister only started to do that after the public announcement was made. I think mm. there's a bit of a reflex to considering the domestic politics. Um, I think the better approach would have been to think about how we got a better outcome for the country and, and frankly, for the international community. Having said that, we support an international inquiry. Uh, you know, I hope that uh, one can be established. I hope we can get across the world a, a su sufficient support for a credible international inquiry. Uh, and I hope we can in collectively get to a position uh, where China recognises that it is in its interests to cooperate and to participate in such an inquiry. The pandemic started in China, and it seems as if the government's uh, ingrained urge to cover up uh, some of the problems initially at least, uh, led to delays uh, in measures that might have curtailed its spread abroad. It's also the pandemic has claimed its greatest toll in America. Um, these facts alone would have led to distrust and acrimony between the world's two largest superpowers. But I think things have really taken on an almost uh, farcical turn in the levels that both the US and China um, are taking to make accusations and counter accusations. Um, I think the latest twist in the saga is that uh, there are now allegations made by the Trump administration made without really any corroborating evidence that the virus emerged from a Wuhan lab. Uh, mm -hmm. We've seen similarly outrageous allegations made by uh, the Chinese side um, that um, this was a conspiracy which emerged from the US and was planted in China. Um, you have written about the fact that um, uh, humanity deserves better than a propaganda push and credibility depends on doing better. Um, it strikes me in particular, looking at the United States, that the Trump administration is unlikely to win very many converts to its cause by, by trading these accusations and counter-accusations with Beijing. And even Five Eyes partners, um, including senior Australian intelligence sources uh, and their UK counterparts, are briefing the media against the Trump administration claims that the coronavirus came from a Chinese lab. So my, my question to you is, what do you make of this lack of trust in the credibility of the United States? How should Australia respond to an ally that has been both as chaotic as it has been in its response, but also, I think, frankly, championing wild theories without, without substantiating evidence? Well, you're right. I did write that humanity deserves better than a propaganda push, and that is a, a principle which I think is worth adhering to. Um, Obviously, we are a US ally. We have a long-standing and deep relationship with the United States and its people. And I think we, like many people around the world, look to the tragedy in the United States uh, with a great deal of grief and sadness, as you say, um, the death toll now beyond that of um, America's loss during the, war, uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, and we hope uh, that both the public health crisis in the United States and also its position as a, a consistent global leader uh, can both be restored. Uh, in terms of the allegations, uh, I think the Australian government uh, has done the right thing by being clear uh, now that, that they have seen no evidence that supports these particular allegations in relation to the Wuhan laboratory. The Prime Minister has made that clear, uh, and that's the right thing to do. 
I think it is disappointing that we see some of those allegations as well as some of the other uh, somewhat far-fetched propositions that you described um, out of China. I think they're very disappointing because they are, uh, as I said, fueling um, the distrust that uh, unfortunately we see too much of in this world and they are preventing the two great powers from helping to prevent the two great powers from engaging the sort of cooperation the world does need in terms of responding to the pandemic. The rationale for calling for an investigation is that, um, in your words, it should be done in order to improve the international institutions on which we rely. And I think that really is the, uh, to me at least, should be the purpose behind the investigation, uh, identifying where things went wrong so that we can improve, um, learn our lessons as an international community, and strengthen international institutions rather than rather than weaken them. Um, should the Australian government do more to differentiate its diplomatic efforts uh, for an independent investigation from uh, the sort of perceived scapegoating of the World Health Organization, or is that overblown? Well, I think we need to be clear what our objectives are uh, and be prepared to be clear about differences between our position and those of our ally. And fundamentally, um, we have a different set of interests when it comes to multilateralism, uh, both as in terms of the principles underlying it, but uh, also the institutions which comprise the system. Australia is, you know, it's a substantial power. We're not a superpower. We're an o a relatively open economy. We're a trading nation. Uh, we are a democracy. Uh, and those, all of those aspects of our identity and our place in the world require a sound system, uh, an effective system of, for international cooperation. So we, we have been and should continue to be strong multilateralists. Uh, in this, our, different, our views differ and our interests differ from those that the United States under the current administration is articulating. They've had a, a different view uh, about multilateralism. They've had a different view about the World Trade Organization, Uh, and the institution, other, other institutions, uh, including the WHO. It is undoubtedly the case that there are reforms that could be made and should be made to various institutions, and I think the WHO is one of them. But vacating the space is not a reform strategy, uh, and it's not in Australia's interest to walk away. Uh, the government hasn't done that, uh, and that's a good thing. Uh, and in our approach, whether it's to the investigation or inquiry and or the related issue which may comprise a significant part of it, which is what reforms are required to the World Health Organization. We need to be really clear that Australia's interests are in making multilateralism and its institutions work better. Coming back to Australia, there, there seems to be a point of tension almost between sovereignty on the one hand and the need for stronger, more effective institutions. And I think that sort of tension between the primacy of nation states And the efficacy of international institutions is, is neatly characterized by the, the contradictions, it would appear, between the Prime Minister's characterization of negative globalism in a speech he made about six months ago at the Lowy Institute, where he was speaking about uh, an, an unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy um, having too much power relative to nation states, and, and now seemingly acknowledging in the wake of this crisis that international institutions like the WHO are not powerful enough to be fit for purpose. I mean, how do you explain this, this contradiction in Australia's outlook towards multilateralism? That's a good question. Uh, look, I think first, 
I mean, it's obviously I'm I'm giving my view about what Mr Morrison is doing and saying, so it is my view, but what I would say is I think you can explain the difference in his position by understanding that he was speaking with a domestic political perspective, uh, objective in mind. I think our Prime Minister does have a pretty strong reflex to domestic politics and to marketing, and I think the differences between those two positions can be explained by the differential domestic objective. So six months ago in that speech about negative globalism, which is a phrase I have to say I think is both vapid but particular, but potentially re- um, reckless, uh, risky, I should say, um, he's, he was channelling those in Australia, particularly some in his party, who have a very hard right view about international institutions and the importance of sovereignty and pushing back on the unelected bureaucracy in the United Nations. And his speech included the sentence that you raised and others which were really messaging to that constituency. Then, mm. as you say, he, he decided he wanted to say that the World Health Organisation would have something like um, weapons inspectors, which is in fact giving them that institution more power in relation to sovereign states. So they're not intellectually consistent position, but they are consistent in terms of looking to domestic politics. But leaving that aside, are the lessons from COVID-19 that we need to work together more or that we would need to be more separate? What I'd say is I don't think it's as simple a binary as that. I do believe, and obviously I'm an internationalist and a multilateralist, I do believe collective responses require collective solutions. Uh, And whether that's in the context of the GFC, where we know that working together, both in terms of fiscal stimulus, uh, but more broadly, the, it was it's a more economically effective response than if countries um, worked alone. Similarly, the pandemic, we, there are a number of areas in terms of public health, including the, you know, the supply of PPE um, and other uh, medical equipment. Uh, we would do better working more together. Of course, mm. a virus um, such as the one we face does have consequences for some aspects of globalisation. It has consequences for the movement of people in the way that we have known. It does have consequences for consideration of supply chains uh, and whether or not prioritising efficiency of supply chains has uh, outweighed uh, some of the, the benefits of having some sovereign capability. So my way of thinking, we, we have to... Uh, look at this very carefully and soberly. We need to not descend into isolationism and protectionism or even autarky. We need to recognise that there is a lot of good that has been generated, a lot of economic good that has been generated by stronger global integration. But we also need to recognise that in the face of this um, external shock, this pandemic, national resilience matters and we need to work out where on the continuum between openness and close and being closed, uh, do we want our economy to be? And more importantly, which are the strategic sectors that we think we really need to prioritise resilience over efficiency? Speaking of our regional partners now, um, we've obviously invested a lot in um, our Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, which really rests on the the depth and reliability of of the partnerships with other emerging and established uh, middle powers, as well as obviously the United States. Um, But one way that Australia has proven to be an effective multilateralist in the past 
is that we we're very pragmatic. Uh, we move easily in our relations between the developed and the developing world, and, and yet there's been a there's almost a conspicuous absence, I think, in the debate about other countries. I mean, it was, I was struck by uh, the Q and A episode, for example, that you mm. featured in a few days ago. There wasn't yes, a single we didn't question. Talk about yeah, Indonesia or any ASEAN nation in that. Uh, I noticed that too. Yeah. And and I think more broadly, I think there's also been a, a conspicuous absence of regional institutions, ASEAN, ASEAN Plus in the COVID debate uh, in Australia. Now, is that a sign perhaps of the shallowness of um, some of our partnerships and Asian regionalism? Um, is it a sign of the fact that, again, this pandemic is global in nature and therefore we need to be thinking global in terms of our responses and looking further afield in terms of improving our ties with Europe, for example? Um, or is there a sort of a missing link here between the global and, and, and the bilateral in Australian foreign policy? Uh, what do you make of this? Well, perhaps the first answer is probably something much more practical and prosaic, and that is bandwidth. You, you know, we have, um, we, we are in a better place in Australia now than we were a month ago. Um, so we, we have a little more bandwidth to focus on these issues. But uh, for many nations, the scale complexity, uh, extent of the battle against the pandemic, against the virus, is really almost all-consuming. So it's very difficult, I suspect, for leaders in many countries to focus beyond the domestic. Mm. Uh, so I think, I think in part it's that. I think we do uh, have to find the bandwidth, though, and you know, we, we should recognise um, given our knowledge that the security and prosperity of Australia is intimately bound up, particularly with the security and prosperity of the ASEAN nations of Southeast Asia, uh, we should stand ready uh, to assist and we should, as we have in every significant crisis in recent decades, uh, worked with the countries of the region um, to support, help, assist, work together to deal with the, both the health, public health and economic crises that they are facing. Mm. As you know, Senator, I, I focus my research um, at the Lowy Institute on the balance of power, mm. the distribution of power. And I think this pandemic will affect the power of countries in, in different ways. So does this mean your middle power thesis, the power of middle powers, is, is going to gain more traction, do you think, are they? I think uh, it, it happens to be middle powers that have um, been more competent in their reactions to this. This is obviously a test of internal resilience, as you say, and of, of internal sovereignty. And for a variety of reasons, middle powers have been more adept mm. at handling this crisis. Whether they're capable of working together internationally, though, mm. um, in the vacuum of international leadership, um, that remains an open question. Um, but, but I think coming to Australia, I'm sort of thinking about how Australia stands to develop as a result of this uh, pandemic in terms of the distribution of power in the region. Uh, we know that um, we stand a good chance of insulating ourselves from the worst effects of the health pandemic, but obviously we've not escaped the economic consequences. Yeah. And um, Australia is about to record a significant drop in net migration levels as a result of, um, of coronavirus. Our overseas migration intake may fall by up to 85% in the next financial year. Now, as you know, Australia is very dependent on um, on migration uh, for um, gains in our working age population. The Age of Power Index um, had forecast that Australia would benefit from the sixth highest expected labour dividends 
by the mid-century point in the Asia-Pacific region. What do we mean by that? There is not only going to be a gain in our working age population if migration levels continue as they have, but we also have a high-quality workforce. So our per capita productivity um, of our average worker is higher than in places like in Malaysia and Bangladesh. And so those two factors combined make for a very rare uh, situation in which we have a developed economy that is still growing its working age population. It strikes me that that may now have to be revised as a result of the coronavirus. Um, that may not only result in a sort of weaker economy, but I think perhaps also ha may have adverse implications for the strength of our foreign and defense policies. Australia could be a weaker, poorer and far less secure nation as a result without uh, migration. Now, your colleague in, in the Senate, uh, Christina Connolly, wrote an op-ed over the weekend entitled, Do We Want Migrants to Return in the Same Numbers? The answer is no, unquote. My question to you, is there not a real risk here that a long-term drop in our migrant intake could undermine our relative strengths as a young and growing nation? There's a lot in that question. Can I just sort of go through it sequentially? First, can I just make this yeah. comment? I think your point yeah. about the potential of middle powers to work together is the right one. And I think, in mm. fact, that is a point more salient um, in the world post the arrival of COVID-19 than it was before. So I think it you know, had merit before, but I think it is even more imperative now, um, particularly given where the great powers are. Uh, the second point is your assessment of our economy is correct. I mean, we have been um, greatly benefited by migration, uh, both in terms of our national identity, but also our national economy. Uh, and but for migration, uh, there have been many periods where you might not have seen much population growth in Australia, and you certainly would have seen the demographic changes in terms of the age dependency ratio, which would have been uh, much more problematic for Australia than they are given the numbers of uh, migrants we have had. Uh, so I want to preface all of this by recognising how important migration has been to us and what a benefit it, has, it is to us. I think the the um, point Senator Keneally was making is the composition of migration. Um, we, we do have many more temporary migrants than we previously had as a, a in terms of the balance of our net overseas migration. And, and that brings with it some challenges, um, including the exploitation of temporary workers on those visas uh, and there have been quite high profile cases of those and of course once that exploitation becomes more widespread there's a, a question of the undermining of the Australian labour market. So I think that they're reasonable points to raise. Mm. Uh, more broadly, um, you're right, we are going to have to have a discussion about what we do as we go forward because the the, the pet overseas migration, the NOM as we call it, um, will drop by 85% I think the Prime Minister said and you referenced in your question, that's a very large job. And we have to have a, there will be a national discussion about the composition and shape of um, the, the migration program going forward from such a low base in a, in, a, in, a, in a period where you would anticipate Australia's borders, international borders, will be um, closed for you know, some time as long as there is the sort of risk we see from you know, countries overseas. Uh, and the, where the pandemic is um, at, at this time. So it remains to be seen. Uh, one final question, Senator. Um, it's always interesting to reflect how our lives have been changed by this mm. pandemic. How do you feel about working from home? Yay or, or, or nay? <laughs> A bit of both, I think. Uh, uh, look, 
I, I think that, well, first, just as a you know, work practice, we politicians travel a lot. There's a lot of expectation of face-to-face meetings. I suspect we could travel quite a bit less and still do our jobs, and, you know, that's probably a good lesson to learn. But on a more philosophical note, I, I've also really tried through this period to you know, try and notice what is good. You know, when you when you see the images of the, the tragic images from countries overseas, when you see uh, in Australia you know, families of those who, who have been affected or who've lost someone, it is a good time to remind ourselves about the good things in our lives. So I've tried to do that. Mm. I should also perhaps mention for the benefit of our listeners that you kindly volunteered to come into your electorate office in Adelaide to record this podcast. And I think that's because your home internet connection was found wanting. So there you go. There are some some uh, disadvantages to working from home. That's right. Uh, well, we, you see, we, we didn't get to build the end the National Broadband Network in the way Labor gov- the Labor government would have. So we're all paying for it now. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. But um, Senator, you've been more than generous with your time. Uh, measured and uh, meticulous as always in your answers. Uh, Thanks again for joining me today for what has been a rich discussion on Australia's role in shaping the post-COVID-19 world. Well, great to speak with you, Irve, and and I'm really pleased to be part of what is a really good initiative from you and from Owen. Thank you. And and thank you also to my wonderful colleagues, Erin Bassett, Sandra Rigby and Jennifer Reinhardt for your assistance in the production of this episode. Please keep an eye on our social media channels for details of the next episode in the series. You'll also find all the previous episodes of COVIDcast on the homepage of our website. And you can stay up to date with all the latest developments on the coronavirus via the Lowe Institute's online magazine, The Interpreter. Thank you all for listening today. This has been Hervé Lamieux for COVIDcast and we'll catch up with you again next week. Thank you.